The door opened. "'Oh, good afternoon, Squire,' said Sergeant Colon brightly, touching his helmet. "'Sorry to bother you. I expect it's your busy time, but I've got to ask just to eliminate you from our inquiries, so to speak. Do you use any arsenic around the place?' Uh, "'Don't leave the officer standing there, Fandley,' said a nervous voice, and the workman stepped aside. "'Good afternoon, officer. How may we help you?' "'Checking up on arsenic, sir? Seems some's been getting where it shouldn't.' Uh, "'Really? Good heavens! I'm sure we don't use any, but uh, do come inside while I check with the foreman. I'm certain there's a pot of tea, hot, too.' Colon looked behind him. The mist was rising, the sky was going grey. "'Wouldn't say no, sir,' he said. The door closed behind him. A moment later there was the faint scrape of the bolts. "'Right,' said Vimes. "'Let's start again.' He picked up an imaginary ladle. I'm the cook. I've made this nourishing gruel that tastes like dog's water. I'm filling up three bowls. Everyone's watching me. All the bowls have been well washed. Right, OK. The tasters take two, one to taste, and these days the others for little bottom to check, and then a servant, that's you, Carrot, takes the third one and puts it in the dumbwaiter, sir. There's one up to every room. I thought they carried them up. Six floors, it'd get stone cold, sir. All right, hold on, we've gone too far. You've got the bowl, do you put it on a tray? Yes, sir. Put it on a tray, then. Carrot obediently put the invisible bowl on an invisible tray. Anything else? said Vimes. Piece of bread, sir, and we check the loaf. Soup spoon? Yes, sir. Well, don't just stand there, put them on. Carrot detached one hand from the invisible tray to take an invisible piece of bread and an intangible spoon. Anything else? said Vimes. Salt and pepper? I think I remember salt and pepper pots, sir. On they go, then. Vimes stared, hawk-like, at the space between Carrot's hands. No, he said. We wouldn't have missed that, would we? I mean, we wouldn't, would we? He reached out and picked up an invisible tube. Tell me we've checked the salt, he said. That's the pepper, sir, said Carrot, helpfully. "'Salt, mustard, vinegar, pepper,' said Vimes. "'We didn't check all the food and then let his lordship tip poison on to suit his taste, did we? "'Arsenic's a metal. Can't you get metal salts? "'Tell me we asked ourselves that. We aren't that stupid, are we?' "'I'll check directly,' said Carrot. He looked around desperately. "'I'll just put the tray down.' "'Not yet,' said Vimes. "'I've been here before. "'We don't rush off shouting, "'Give me a towel, just because we've had one idea.' Let's keep looking, shall we? The spoon, what's it made of? Good point. I'll check the cutlery, sir. Now we're cooking with charcoal. What's he been drinking? Boiled water, sir. We've tested the water and I checked the glasses. Good. So, we've got the tray and you put the tray in the dumb waiter and then what? The men in the kitchen haul on the ropes and it goes up to the sixth floor. No stops? Carrot looked blank. It goes up six floors, said Vimes. It's just a shaft with a big box in it that can be pulled up and down, isn't it? I'll bet there's a door into it on every floor. Some of the floors are hardly used these days, sir. Even better for our poisoner, hmm? He just stands there bold as you like and waits for the tray to come by, right? We don't know that the meal which arrives is the one that left, do we? Brilliant, sir. It happens at night, I'll swear, said Vimes. He's chipper in the evenings and out like a light next morning. What time is his supper sent up? While he's poorly, around six o'clock, sir, said Carrot. 
It's got dark by then. Then he gets on with his writing. Right. We've got a lot to do. Come on. The patrician was sitting up in bed reading when Vimes entered. Ah, Vimes, he said. Your supper will be up shortly, my lord, said Vimes, and can I once again say that our job would be a lot easier if you let us move you out of the palace? I'm sure it would be, said Lord Vetinari. There was a rattle from the dumb waiter. Vimes walked across and opened the doors. There was a dwarf in the box. He had a knife between his teeth and an axe in each hand and was glowering with ferocious concentration. Good heavens, said Vetinari weakly. I hope at least they've included some mustard. Any problems, constable? said Vimes. No, sir, said the dwarf, unfolding himself and removing the knife. Very dull all the way up, sir. There was other doors and they all looked pretty unused, but I nailed them up anyway like Captain Carrot said, sir. Well done. Down you go. Vimes shut the doors. There was more rattling as the dwarf began its descent. Every detail covered, eh, Vimes? I hope so, sir. The box came up again with a tray in it. Vimes took it out. What's this? A clatching hots without edgevids, said Vimes, lifting the cover. We got it from Ron's pizza hovel round the corner. The way I see it, no one can poison all the food in the city, and the cutlery's from my place. You have the mind of a true policeman, Vimes. Thank you, sir. Really? Was it a compliment? The patrician prodded at the plate with the air of an explorer in a strange country. Has someone already eaten this, Vimes? No, sir, that's just how they chop up the food. Oh, I see. I thought perhaps the food tasters were getting over-enthusiastic, said the patrician. My word, what a treat I have to look forward to. I could see you're feeling a lot better, sir, said Vimes stiffly. Thank you, Vimes. When Vimes had gone, Lord Vetinari ate the pizza, or at least those parts of it he thought he could recognise. Then he put the tray aside and blew out the candle by his bed. He sat in the dark for a while, then felt under his pillow until his finger located a small sharp knife and a box of matches. Thank goodness for Vimes. There was something endearing about his desperate, burning and, above all, misplaced competence. If the poor man took any longer, he'd have to start giving him hints. In the main office, Carrot sat alone, watching Dorful. The golem stood where it had been left. Someone had hung a dishcloth on one arm. The top of its head was still open. Carrot spent a while with his chin on one hand, just staring. Then he opened a desk drawer and took out Dorfel's chem. He examined it. He got up. He walked over to the golem. He placed the words in the head. An orange glow rose in Dorfel's eyes. What was baked pottery took on that faintest of auras that marked the change between the living and the dead. Carrot found the golem's slate and pencil and pushed them into Dorfel's hand, then stood back. The burning gaze followed him as he removed his sword belt, undid his breastplate, took off his jerkin and pulled his woollen vest over his head. The glow was reflected from his muscles. They glistened in the candlelight. No weapons, said Carrot, no armour. You see? Now, listen to me. Dorfel lurched forward and swung a fist. Carrot did not move. The fist stopped a hair's breadth from Carrot's unblinking eyes. I didn't think you could he said as the golem swung again and the fist jerked to a stop a fraction of an inch from Carrot's stomach. But sooner or later you'll have to talk to me. Right, anyway. Dorfel paused. Then it picked up the slate pencil. Take my words, 
Tell me about the golem who killed people. The pencil did not move. The others have killed themselves, said Carrot. I know. How do you know? The golem watched him. Then it wrote, Clay of my clay. You feel what other golems feel, said Carrot. Dorful nodded. And people are killing golems, said Carrot. I don't know if I can stop that, but I can try. I think I know what's happening, Dorful, some of it. I think I know who you are following, clay of your clay, shaming you all. Something went wrong. You tried to put it right. I think you all had such hopes. But the words in your head will defeat you every time. The golem stayed motionless. You sold him, didn't you? said Carrot quietly. Why? The words were scribbled quickly. Golem must have a master. Why? Because the words say so? Golem must have a master. Carrot sighed. Man had to breathe, fish had to swim. Golems had to have a master. I don't know if I can sort this out, but no one else is going to try, believe me, he said. Dorful did not move. Carrot went back to where he'd been standing. I'm wondering if the old priest and Mr Hopkinson did something, or helped to do something, he said, watching the golem's face. I'm wondering if afterwards something turned against them, found the world a bit too much. Dorful remained impassive. Carrot nodded. Anyway, you're free to go. What happens now is up to you. I'll help you if I can. If a golem is a thing, then it can't commit murder, and I'll still try to find out why all this is happening. If a golem can commit murder, then you are people, and what is being done to you is terrible and must be stopped. Either way, you win, Dorful. He turned his back and fiddled with some papers on his desk. The big trouble, he added, is that everyone wants someone else to read their minds for them and then make the world work properly. Even golems, perhaps. He turned back to face the golem. I know you've all got a secret, but the way things are going, there won't be any of you left to keep it. He looked hopefully at Dorful. No, clay of my clay, I will not betray. Carrot sighed. Well, I won't force you, he grinned, although you know I could. I could write a few extra words on your chem, tell you to be talkative. The fires rose in Dorful's eyes. But I won't, because that would be inhumane. You haven't murdered anyone. I can't deprive you of your freedom because you haven't got any. Go on, you can go. It's not as if I don't know where you live. To work is to live. What is it golems want, Dorful? I've seen you golems walking around the streets and working all the time, but what is it you actually hope to achieve? The slate pencil scribbled. Respite. Then Dorful turned around and walked out of the building. Damn, said Carrot, a difficult linguistic feat. He drummed his fingers on the desk, then got up abruptly, put his clothing back on, and stalked down the corridor to find Angua. She was leaning against the wall in Corporal Littlebottom's office, talking to the dwarf. "'I've sent Dorful home,' said Carrot. "'Has he got one?' said Angua. "'Well, back to the slaughterhouse, anyway, but it's probably not a good time for a golem to be out alone, so I'm just going to stroll along after him and keep... Are you all right, Corporal Littlebottom?' "'Yes, sir,' said Cherry. "'You're wearing, er... Uh, um, 
Carrot's mind rebelled at the thought of what the dwarf was wearing and settled for... Er, uh, kilt? Yes, sir. A skirt, sir. A leather one, sir. Carrot tried to find a suitable response and had to resort to... Oh. I'll come with you, said Angua. Sherry can keep an eye on the desk. A kilt, said Carrot. Oh, well, er, uh, just keep an eye on things. We won't be long, and er, uh, just keep behind the desk, all right. Come on, said Angua. When they were out in the fog, Carrot said, Do you think there's something a bit odd about Little Bottom? Seems like a perfectly ordinary female to me, said Angua. Female? He told you he was female? She, Angua corrected, this is Ankh Morpork, you know, we've got extra pronouns here. She could smell his bewilderment. Of course, everyone knew that somewhere down under all those layers of leather and chainmail, dwarfs came in enough different types to ensure the future production of more dwarfs. But it was not a subject that dwarfs discussed, other than at those essential points in a courtship when embarrassment might otherwise arise. Well, I would have thought she'd have the decency to keep it to herself, Carrot said finally. I mean, I've nothing against females. I'm pretty certain my stepmother is one. But I don't think it's very clever, you know, to go around drawing attention to the fact. Carrot, I think you've got something wrong with your head, said Angua. What? I think you may have got it stuck up your bum. I mean, good grief, a bit of make-up and a dress, and you're acting as though she'd become Miss Vavavoom and started dancing on tables down at the skunk club. There were a few seconds of shocked silence while they both considered the image of a dwarfish striptease dancer. Both minds rebelled. Anyway, said Angua, if people can't be themselves in Aunt Morpork, where can they? There'll be trouble when the other dwarfs notice, said Carrot. I could almost see his knees, her knees. Everyone's got knees. Perhaps, but it's asking for trouble to flaunt them. I mean, I'm used to knees. I can look at knees and think, oh yes, knees, they're just hinges in your legs. But some of the lads... <laughs> Angua sniffed. He turned left here. Some of the lads what? Well, I don't know how they'll react, that's all. You shouldn't have encouraged her. I mean, of course there's female dwarfs, but, I mean, they have the decency not to show it. He heard Angua gasp. Her voice sounded rather far away when she said, Carrot, you know, I've always respected your attitude to the citizens of Aunt Morpork. Yes? I've been impressed by the way you really seem to be blind to things like shape and colour. Yes? And you always seem to care for people. Yes? And you know that I feel considerable affection for you. Yes? It's just that sometimes... Yes? I really, really, really wonder why. Carriages were thickly parked outside Lady Selarchi's mansion when Corporal Nobbs strolled up the drive. He knocked on the door. A footman opened it. Servant's entrance, said the footman, and made to shut the door again. But Nobby's outstretched foot had been ready for this. Read these, he said, thrusting two bits of paper at him. The first one read, I, after hearing evidence from a number of experts, including Mrs. Slipdry, the midwife, certify that the balance of probability is that the bearer of this document, C.W. St. John Nobbs, is a human being. Signed, Lord Vetinari. The other was the letter from Dragon, King of Arms. The footman's eyes widened. Oh, I am terribly sorry, your lordship, he said. He stared again at Corporal Nobbs. Nobby was clean-shaven, 
At least the last time he'd shaved, he'd been clean-shaven, but his face had so many minor topological features that it looked like a very bad example of slash-and-burn agriculture. "'Who, dear?' added the footman. He pulled himself together. "'The other visitors normally just have cards.' Nobby produced a battered deck. "'I'm probably busy hobnobbing right now,' he said, "'but I'm game for a few rounds of crippled Mr Runyon afterwards, if you like.' The footman looked him up and down. He didn't get out much. He'd heard rumours, who hadn't, that working in the watch was the rightful king of Ankh-Morpork. He wanted to hide a secret heir to the throne. You couldn't possibly hide him more carefully than under the face of C.W. St. J. Nobbs. On the other hand... The footman was something of an historian, and knew that in its long history even the throne itself had been occupied by creatures who had been hunchbacked, one-eyed, knuckle-dragging, and as ugly as sin. On that basis, Nobby was as royal as they came. If, technically, he wasn't hunchbacked, this was only because he was hunched front and sides, too. There might be a time, the footman thought, when it paid to hitch your wagon to a star, even if said star was a red dwarf. "'You've never been to one of these affairs before, my lord,' he said. First time,' said Nobby. "'I'm sure your lordship's blood will rise to the occasion,' said the footman, weakly. "'I'll have to go,' Angua thought as they hurried through the fog. "'I can't go on living from month to month. "'It's not that he's not likeable. "'You couldn't wish to meet a more caring man. "'That's just it. "'He cares for everyone. "'He cares about everything. "'He cares indiscriminately.' He knows everything about everyone because everyone interests him. And the caring is all general and never personal. He doesn't think personal is the same as important. If only he had some decent human quality like selfishness. I'm sure he doesn't think about it that way, but you can tell the werewolf thing is upsetting him underneath. He cares about the things people say behind my back and he doesn't know how to deal with them. What was it those dwarfs said the other day? One said something like, she feels the need, and the other one said, yeah, the need to feed. I saw his expression. I can handle that sort of thing, well, most of the time, but he can't. If only he'd thump someone. It wouldn't do any good, but at least he'd feel better. It's going to get worse. At best, I'm going to get caught in someone's chicken house, and then the midden is really going to hit the windmill. Or I'll get caught in someone's room. She tried to shut out the thought, but it didn't work. You could only control the werewolf. You couldn't tame it. It's the city. Too many people, too many smells. Maybe it would work if we were just alone somewhere. But if I said, it's me or the city, he wouldn't even see there was a choice. Sooner or later, I've got to go home. It's the best thing for him. Vimes walked back through the damp night. He knew he was too angry to think properly. He'd got nowhere, and he'd travelled a long way to get there. He'd got a cartload of facts, and he'd done all the right logical things, and to someone somewhere, he must look like a fool. He'd probably looked like a fool to Carrot already. He'd kept coming up with bright ideas, proper policeman's ideas, and each one had turned out to be a joke. He'd bullied and shouted and done all the proper things, and none of it had worked. They hadn't found a thing. They'd merely increased their amount of ignorance. The ghost of old Mrs Easy rose up in his inner vision. He couldn't remember much about her. He'd been just another snotty kid in a crowd of snotty kids, and she'd been just another worried face somewhere on top of a pinny. One of Cockbill Street's people. She'd taken in needlework to make ends meet and kept up appearances, and, like everyone else in the street, had crept through life, never asking for anything, and getting even less. What else could he have done? 
They'd practically scraped the damn wallpaper off the walls. He stopped. There was the same wallpaper in both rooms, in every room on that floor, that horrible green wallpaper. But no, that couldn't be it. Vetinari had slept in that room for years, if he slept at all. You can't sneak in and redecorate without someone noticing. In front of him, the fog rolled aside. He caught a glimpse of a candlelit room in a nearby building before the cloud flowed back. The fog. Yes, dampness. Creeping in, brushing against the wallpaper. The old, dusty, musty wallpaper. Would Cheery have tested the wallpaper? After all, in a way, you didn't actually see it. It wasn't in the room because it was defining what the room was. Could you actually be poisoned by the walls? He hardly dared think the thought. If he let his mind settle on the suspicion, it'd twist and fly away like all the others. But this was it, said his secret soul. All the messing around with susps and clues, that was just something to keep the body amused while the back of the brain toiled away. Every real copper knew you didn't go around looking for clues so that you could find out who'd done it. No, you started out with a pretty good idea of who done it. That way, you knew what clues to look for. He wasn't going to have another day of bafflement interspersed with desperately bright ideas, was he? It was bad enough looking at Corporal Littlebottom's expression, which seemed to be getting a little more colourful every time he saw it. He'd said, Ah, arsenic's a metal, right, so maybe the cutlery has been made of it. He wouldn't forget the look on the dwarf's face, as Cheery tried to explain that, yes, it might be possible to do that, provided you were sure that no one would notice the way it dissolved in the soup almost instantly. This time, he was going to think first. The Hurl of Honk, Corporal the Right Honourable Lord C.W. St. J. Nobbs. The buzz of conversation stopped. Heads turned. Somewhere in the crowd, someone started to laugh and was hurriedly shushed into silence by their neighbours. Lady Silachi came forward. She was a tall, angular woman with the sharp features and aquiline nose that were the hallmarks of the family. The impression was that an axe was being thrown at you. Then she curtsied. There were gasps of surprise around her, but she glared at the assembled guests and there was a smattering of bows and curtsies. Somewhere at the back of the room, someone started to say... But the man's an absolute oik, and was cut off. Has someone dropped something? said Nobby nervously. I'll help you look if you like. The footman appeared at his elbow, bearing a tray. Hey, drink, my lord, he said. Yeah, okay, a pint of winkles, said Nobby. Jaws fell, but Lady Salaches rose to the occasion. Winkles, she said. Hey, type of beer, your ladyship, said the footman. Her ladyship hesitated only a moment. "'I believe the butler drinks beer,' she said. "'See to it, man, and I'll have a pint of Winkles, too. "'What a novel idea!' "'This caused a certain effect among those guests "'who knew on which side of the biscuit their pâté was spread. "'Indeed, <laughs> capital suggestion. "'A pint of Winkles here, too. "'Ho, ho, ho! Great! Winkles for me! "'Winkles all round! "'But the man's an absolute tight. Shut up!' Vimes crossed the brass bridge with care, counting the hippos. There was a ninth shape, but it was leaning against the parapet and muttering to itself in a familiar, and to Vimes at least, an unmenacing way. Faint air movements wafted towards him a smell that outsmelled even the river. It proclaimed that ahead of Vimes was a ding-a-ling so big he'd been upgraded to a clang-a-lang. 
Bugger it. I told them, stand it up and pull the end off, millennium end and shrimp, I told them. Ooh, says I, and would they poke? Evening, Ron, said Vimes, without even bothering to look at the figure. Foul old Ron fell into step behind him. Bugger it. They done me out of it, so they did. Yes, Ron, said Vimes. And shrimp, bugger it, I say. Oh, bread it on the butter side. <laughs> Queen Molly says to watch your back, mister. What was that? Souter fry it, said foul old Ron innocently. Trouser the lot of them if they did me out of it. Them and their big weasel. The beggar lurched around, and filthy coat dragging its hems along the ground, limped away into the fog. His little dog trotted along in front of him. There was pandemonium in the servants' hall. Winkle's old peculiar, said the butler. Another one hundred and four pints, said the footman. The butler shrugged. Harry, Sid, Rob and Geoffrey, two trays apiece and double down to the king's head again right now. What else is he doing? Well, they're supposed to be having a poetry reading, but he's telling them jokes. Anecdotes? Not exactly. It was amazing how it could drizzle and fog at the same time. Wind was blowing both through the open window, forced to shut it. He lit the candles by his desk and opened his notebook. Probably he should use the demonic organiser, but he likes to see things written down fair and square. He could think better when he wrote things down. He wrote, Arsenic, and drew a big circle round it. Around the circle he wrote, Father Tubalcheck's fingernails, and Rats, and Vetinari, and Mrs. Easy. Lower down the page he wrote, Golems, and drew a second circle. Around that one he wrote, Father Tubalcheck, and Mr. Hopkinson. After some thought he wrote down, Stolen Clay, and Grog, and then... Why would a golem admit to something it didn't do? He stared at the candlelight for a while and then wrote, Rats eat stuff. More time passed. What has the priest got that anyone wants? From downstairs came the sound of armour as a patrol came in. A corporal shouted. Words, wrote Vimes. What had Mr Hopkinson got? Dwarf bread? Arrow not stolen. What else had he got? Vimes looked at this too, and then he wrote bakery, stared at the word for a while, and rubbed it out and replaced it with oven. He drew a ring around oven and a ring around stolen clay and linked the two. There'd been arsenic under the old priest's fingernails. Perhaps he'd put down rat poison. There were plenty of uses for arsenic. It wasn't as if you couldn't buy it by the pound from any alchemist. He wrote down arsenic monster and looked at it. You found dirt under fingernails. If people had put up a fight, you might find blood or skin. You didn't find grease and arsenic. He looked at the page again, and after still more thought, wrote, Golems aren't alive, but they think they are alive. What do things that are alive do? Arrow. Answer. Breathe, eat, crap. He paused, staring out at the fog, and then wrote very carefully, And make more things. Something tingled at the back of his neck. He circled the late Hopkinson's name and drew a line down the page to another circle in which he wrote, He'd got a big oven. Hmm. Cheery had said you couldn't bake clay properly in a bread oven, but maybe you could bake it improperly. He looked up at the candlelight again. 
They couldn't do that, could they? Oh, gods, no, surely not. But after all, all you needed was clay, and a holy man who knew how to write the words, and someone to actually sculpt the figure, Vimes supposed, but golems had hundreds and hundreds of years to learn to be good with their hands, those great big hands, the ones that looked so very fist-like. And then the first thing they'd want to do would be to destroy the evidence, wouldn't they? They probably didn't think of it as killing, but more like a sort of switching off. He drew another rather misshapen circle on his notes. Grog, old baked clay, ground up small. They'd added some of their own clay. Dorfel had a new foot, didn't he? It? It hadn't made it quite right. They'd put part of their own selves into a new golem. That all sounded, well, Nobby would call it mucky. Vimes didn't know what to call it. It sounded like some sort of secret society thing. Clay of my clay, my own flesh and blood. Damn hulking things, aping their betters. Vimes yawned. Sleep. He'd be better for some sleep. Or something. He stared at the page. Automatically, his hand trailed down to the bottom drawer of his desk, as it always did when he was worried and trying to think. It wasn't as though there was ever a bottle there these days, but old habits died hard. There was a soft, glassy ching and a faint, seductive slosh. Vimes's hand came up with a fat bottle. The label said, Beer Huggers Distilleries, the Macabre Finest Malt. The liquid inside almost crawled up the sides of the glass in anticipation. He stared at it. He'd reached down into the drawer for the whiskey bottle, and there it was. But it shouldn't have been. He knew Carrot and Fred Colan kept an eye on him, but he'd never bought a bottle since he'd got married because he'd promised Sybil, hadn't he? But this wasn't any old rot gut. This was the Macabre. He'd tried it once. He couldn't quite remember why now, since in those days the only spirits he generally drank had the subtlety of a mallet to the inner ear. He must have found the money somehow. Just a sniff of it had been like Hogswatch night. Just a sniff. And she said, that's funny, it didn't do that last night, said Corporal Nobbs. He beamed at the company. There was silence. Then someone in the crowd started to laugh, one of those little uncertain laughs a man laughs who is unsure that he's not going to be silenced by those around him. Another man laughed. Two more picked it up. Then laughter exploded in the group as a whole. Nobby basked. Then there's the one about the Clatchian who walked into a pub with a tiny piano, he began. I think, said Lady Salachi firmly, that the buffet is already. Got any pig knuckles, said Nobby cheerfully. Goes down a trip with winkles, a plate of pig knuckles. I don't normally eat extremities, said Lady Salachi. A pig knuckle sandwich? Never tried a pig knuckle? You just can't beat it, said Nobby. It is perhaps not the most uh, delicate food, said Lady Salachi. Oh, you can cut the crusts off, said Nobby. Even the toenails, if you're feeling posh. Sergeant Colan opened his eyes and groaned. His head ached. They'd hit him with something. It might have been a wall. They'd tied him up too. He was trussed hand and foot. He appeared to be lying in darkness on a wooden floor. There was a greasy smell in the air, which seemed familiar yet annoyingly unrecognisable. As his eyes grew accustomed to the dark, he could make out very faint lines of light, such as might surround a door. He could also hear voices. He tried to get up to his knees and groaned as more pain crackled in his head.
When people tied you up, it was bad news. Of course, it was much better news than when they killed you, but it could mean they were just putting you on one side for killing later. This never used to happen, he told himself. In the old days, if you caught someone thieving, you practically held the door open for him to escape. That way, you got home in one piece. By using the angle between a wall and a heavy crate, he managed to get upright. This was not much of an improvement on his former position, but after the thunder in his head had died away, he hopped awkwardly towards the door. There were still voices on the other side of it. Someone apart from Sergeant Colon was in trouble. Clown! You got me here for this? There's a werewolf in the watch. <laughs> Not one of your freaks. She's a proper bimorphic. If you tossed a coin, she could smell what side it came down. <laughs> How about if we, if we kill him and drag his body away? You think she couldn't smell the difference between a corpse and a living body? Sergeant Colon moaned softly. Um, uh, how, how about we could march him out in the fog? And they can smell fear, idiot. <laughs> Why couldn't you have let him look around? What could he have seen? I know that copper, a fat old coward with all the brains of a <laughs> pig. He stinks of fear all the time. Sergeant Colon hoped he wasn't about to stink of anything else. Send me sugar after him. <laughs> Are you sure? It's getting odd. It wanders off and screams in the night. <laughs> and they're not supposed to do that. And, 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 and it's cracking up. Trust dumb golems not to do something properly. Everyone knows you can't trust golems. <laughs> See to it. I heard that Vimes is... I've seen to Vimes... Colon eased himself away from the door as quietly as possible. He hadn't the faintest idea what this thing called Meshuggah the golems had made was, except that it sounded like a fine idea to be wherever it wasn't. Now, if he were a resourceful type like Sam Vimes or Captain Carrot, he'd find a nail or something to snap these ropes, wouldn't he? They were really tight and cut into his wrists because the cord was so thin. Little more than string wound and knotted many times. If he could find something to rub it on. But, unfortunately, and against all common sense, sometimes people inconsiderately throw their bound enemies into rooms entirely bereft of nails, handy bits of sharp stone, sharp-edged shards of glass, or even, in extreme cases, enough pieces of old junk and tools to make a fully functional armoured car. He managed to get onto his knees again and shuffled across the planks. Even a splinter would do, a lump of metal, a wide-open doorway marked Freedom. He'd settle for anything. What he got was a tiny circle of light on the floor. A knothole in the wood had long ago fallen out, and light, dim orange light, was shining through. Colon got down and applied his eye to the hole. Unfortunately, this also brought his nose into a similar proximity. The stench was appalling. There was a suggestion of wateriness, or at least of liquidity. He must be over one of the numerous streams that flowed through the city, although they had of course been built over centuries before and were now used, if their existence was even remembered, for those purposes to which humanity had always put clean fresh water, i.e. making it as turbid and undrinkable as possible. And this one was flowing under the cattle markets. The smell of ammonia bored into Colon's sinuses like a drill. And yet there was light down there. He held his breath and took another look. A couple of feet below him, was a very small raft. 
Half a dozen rats were laid neatly on it, and a minute scrap of candle was burning. A tiny rowing boat entered his vision. A rat was in the bottom of it, and sitting amidships and rowing was... We mad, Arthur? The gnome looked up. Who's that there, then? It's me, your good old mate Fred Colin. Can you give me a hand? What you's doing up there? I'm all tied up and they're going to kill me. Why does it smell so bad? It's the old cockbill stream and the cattle pens drain into it. We mad Arthur grinned. You can feel it doing your tubes a pair of good, eh? Just call me the king of the golden river, eh? They're going to kill me, Arthur. Don't piss about. <laughs> good one. Desperate cells flared in Colan's mind. I've been on the trail of those blokes who poisoning your rats. The Rat Catcher's Guild, snarled Arthur, almost dropping an oar. I knew it was them right. This is where I got them rats. There's more of them down here, dead as doornails. Right, and I've got to give the names to Commander Vimes in person with all my arms and legs on. He's very particular about that sort of thing. Did you know you's on a trap door, said Arthur. Wait right there. Arthur rode out of sight. Colin rolled over. After a while, there was a scratching noise in the walls, and then someone kicked him in the ear. Ow! Would there be any money in this? said wee mad Arthur, holding up his stub of candle. It was a small one, such as might be put on a child's birthday cake. What about your public duty? Ah, so there's no money in this. Lots, I promise, now untie me. This is a string they've used, said Arthur, somewhere around Colon's hand. Not proper rope at all. Colon felt his hands free, although there was still pressure around his wrists. Where's the trap door? he said. You're on it. Andy for dumping stuff. Don't look as if it's been used for years from underneath. Hey, I've been finding dead rats everywhere down there now. Fat as your head and twice as dead. I thought the ones I caught for Gimlet were a wee bit sluggish. There was a twang and Colon's legs were free. He sat up cautiously and tried to massage some life back into them. Is there any other way out? he said. Plenty for me, but not for a silly bugger like you, said wee mad Arthur. You'll have to swim for it. You want me to drop into that? Don't you worry, you can't drown in it. Are you sure? Yeah, but you may suffocate. You know that creek they talk about, the one you can be up without no paddle? That's not this one, is it? said Colon. It's because of the cattle pens, said wee mad Arthur. Cattle penned up is always a bit nervous. I know how they feel. There was a creak outside the door. Colon managed to get to his feet. The door opened. A figure filled the doorway. It was in silhouette because of the light behind it, but Colon looked up into two triangular glowing eyes. Colon's body, which in many respects was considerably more intelligent than the mind it had to carry around, took over. It made use of the adrenaline-fed start the brain had given it, and leapt several feet in the air, pointing its toes as it came down, so that the iron tips of Colon's boots hit the trapdoor together. The filth of years and the rust of iron gave way. Colon went through. Fortunately, his body had the foresight to hold its own nose as he hit the much-maligned stream, which went... Many people, when they're precipitated into water, struggle to breathe. Sergeant Colon struggled not to. The alternative was too horrible to think about. He rose again, buoyed up in part by various gases released from the ooze. A few feet away, the candle on wee mad Arthur's rocking raft started to burn with a blue flame. Someone landed on his helmet and kicked it like a man's spurs on a horse. Right, turn, forward! Half walking, half swimming, Colon struggled down the fetid drain. Terror lent him strength. It would demand repayment with interest later, but for now, he left awake. 
which took several seconds to close up after him. He didn't stop until a sudden lack of pressure overhead told him that he was in the open air. He grabbed in the darkness, found the greasy pilings of a jetty, and clung to them, wheezing. "'What was that thing?' said Wee Mad Arthur. "'Golem!' Colon panted. He managed to get a hand onto the planks of the jetty, tried to pull himself up, and sagged back into the water. "'Hey, did I just hear something?' said Wee Mad Arthur. Sergeant Colon rose like an undersea-launched missile and landed on the jetty, where he folded up. "'Nah, just a bird or something?' said Wee Mad Arthur. "'What do your friends call you, Wee Mad Arthur?' muttered Colon. "'Tis an owl. I ain't got none. "'Gosh, that's surprising!' "'Lord Dunobbs had a lot of friends now. "'Up the hatch here's looking at your bottom,' he said. "'There were shrieks of laughter. "'Nobby grinned happily in the middle of the crowd. "'He couldn't remember when he had enjoyed himself so much with all his clothes on. "'In the far corner of Lady Salach's drawing-room, "'a door closed discreetly, "'and in the comfortable smoking-room beyond, "'anonymous people sat down in leather armchairs "'and looked at one another expectantly. "'Finally, one said, "'It's astonishing, frankly astonishing,' "'Anne has actually got charisma. "'Your meaning? "'I mean, he's so dreadful, he fascinates people. "'Like those stories he was telling, "'did you notice how people kept encouraging him "'because they couldn't actually believe anyone "'would tell jokes like that in mixed company? "'Actually, I rather liked the one "'about the very small man playing the piano. "'And his table manners. "'Did you notice them?' "'No, exactly. "'And the smell. Don't forget the smell.' "'Not so much bad as odd. "'Actually, I found that after a few minutes the nose shuts down, "'and that my point is that in some strange way he attracts people. "'Like a public hanging.' "'There was a period of reflective silence. "'Good-humoured little tit, though, in his way. "'Not too bright, though.' "'Give him his pint of beer and a plaint of whatever those things with toenails were, "'and he seems as happy as a pig in muck. "'I think that's somewhat insulting. "'I'm sorry. I've known some splendid pigs. "'Indeed, but I can certainly see him drinking his beer and eating feet "'while he signs the royal proclamations. "'Yes, indeed. Uh, do you think he can read? Does it matter?' There was some more silence, filled with the busy racing of minds. Then someone said, "'Another thing, we won't have to worry about establishing a royal succession that might be inconvenient.' "'Why do you think that? Can you see any princess marrying him?' "'Well, they have been known to kiss frogs.' "'Frogs, I grant you. And, of course, power and royalty are powerful aphrodisiacs.' "'How powerful, would you say?' More silence. Then... "'Probably not that powerful. "'He should do nicely. "'Splendid. "'Dragon did well. "'I suppose the little tit isn't really an earl by any chance. "'Don't be silly.' "'Cherie Littlebottom sat awkwardly on the high stool behind the desk. "'All she had to do, she'd been told, "'was check the patrols off and on duty when the shift changed. "'A few of the men gave her an odd look, but they said nothing.' and she was beginning to relax when the four dwarfs on the King's Way beat came in. They stared at her, and her ears. Their eyes travelled downwards. There was no such concept as a modesty panel in Ark Moorpork. All that was usually visible under the desk was the bottom half of Sergeant Colon. 
Of the large number of good reasons for shielding the bottom half of Sergeant Colon from view, its potential for engendering lust was not among the top ten. That's female clothes, isn't it? said one of the dwarfs. Cherie swallowed. Why now? She'd sort of assumed Angua would be around. People always calmed down when she smiled at them. It was really amazing. Well, she quavered, so what? I can if I want to. And on your ear. Well? That's my mother never even. It's disgusting. And in public too. What happens if kids come in? I can see your ankles, said another dwarf. I'm going to speak to Captain Carrot about this, said the third. I never thought I'd live to see the day. Two of the dwarfs stormed off towards the locker room. Another one hurried after them, but hesitated as he drew level with the desk. He gave Cherie a frantic look. Uh, uh, nice ankles, though, he said, and then ran. The fourth dwarf waited until the others had gone, and then sidled up. Cherie was shaking with nervousness. Don't you say a thing about my legs, she said, waving a finger. Uh, the dwarf looked around hurriedly and leaned forward. Uh, is that lipstick? Yes, what about it? Uh, the dwarf leaned forward even more, looked around again, this time conspiratorially, and lowered her voice. Uh, could I try it? Angua and Carrot walked silently through the fog, except for Angua's occasional crisp and brief directions. Then she stopped. Up until then, Dorfal's scent, or at least the fresh scent of old meat and cow dung, had headed quite directly back to the slaughterhouse district. "'It's gone up this alley,' she said. "'That's nearly doubling back. "'And it was moving faster, and there's a lot of humans, and... "'Sausages?' Carrot started to run. A lot of people and the smell of sausages meant a performance of the street theatre that was life in Ankh-Morpork. There was a crowd further up the alley. It had obviously been there for some time, because at the rear was a familiar figure with a tray, craning to see over the tops of the heads. "'What's going on, Mr Dibbler?' Oh, hello, Captain. They've got a golem. Who have? Ah, some blokes. They've just fetched the hammers. There was a press of bodies in front of Carrot. He put both hands together and rammed them between a couple of people and then moved them apart. Grunting and struggling, the crowd opened up like a watercourse in front of the better class of profit. Dorfel was standing at bay at the end of the alley. Three men with hammers were approaching the golem cautiously, in the way of mobs, each unwilling to strike the first blow in case the second blow came right back at him. The golem was crouching back, shielding itself with its slate, on which was written, I am worth five hundred and thirty dollars. Money, said one of the men, that's all you things think about. The slate shattered under a blow. Then he tried to raise his hammer again. When it didn't budge, he very nearly somersaulted backwards. "'Money is all you can think about when all you have is a price,' said Carrot calmly, twisting the hammer out of his grip. "'What do you think you're doing, my friend?' "'You can't stop us,' mumbled the man. "'Everyone knows they're not alive.' "'But I can arrest you for willful damage to property,' said Carrot. "'One of these killed that old priest.' "'Sorry?' said Carrot. "'If it's just a thing, how can it commit murder?' A sword is a thing, he drew his own sword. It made an almost silken sound. And of course you couldn't possibly blame a sword if someone thrust it at you, sir. The man went cross-eyed as he tried to focus on the sword. And again, Angua felt that touch of bewilderment. 
Carrot wasn't threatening the man. He wasn't threatening the man. He was merely using the sword to demonstrate a, well, a point. And that was all. He'd be quite amazed to hear that not everyone would think of it like that. Part of her said, Someone has to be very complex indeed to be as simple as Carrot. The man swallowed. Good point, he said. Yeah, but you can't trust them, said one of the other hammer bearers. They sneak around and they never say anything. What are they up to, eh? He gave Dorful a kick. The golem rocked slightly. Well now, said Carrot, that is what I am finding out. In the meantime, I must ask you to go about your business. The third demolition man had only recently arrived in the city and had gone along with the idea because there are some people who do. He raised his hammer defiantly and opened his mouth to say, Oh yeah, but stopped because just by his ear he heard a growl. It was quite low and soft, but it had a complex little waveform which went straight down into a little knobbly bit in his spinal column where it pressed an ancient button marked Primal Terror. He turned. An attractive watchwoman behind him gave a friendly smile. That was to say her mouth turned up at the corners and all her teeth were visible. He dropped the hammer on his foot. "'Well done,' said Carrot. "'I've always said you can do more with a kind word and a smile.' The crowd looked at him with the kind of expression people always wore when they looked at Carrot. It was the face-cracking realisation that he really did believe what he was saying. The sheer enormity tended to leave people breathless. They backed away and scurried out of the alley. Carrot turned back to the golem, which had dropped to its knees and was trying to piece its slate together. "'Come on, Mr Dorful,' he said. "'We'll walk with you the rest of the way.' "'Are you mad?' said Sock, trying to shut the door. "'You think I want Zat back?' "'He's your property,' said Carrot. "'People were trying to smash him.' "'You should have let them,' said the butcher. "'Haven't you heard the stories? "'I'm not having one of those under my roof.' He tried to slam the door again, but Carrot's foot was in it. "'Then I'm afraid you're committing an offence, said Carrot, "'to wit, littering.' "'Oh, be serious.' "'I always am,' said Carrot. "'He always is.' said Angua. Sock waved his hands frantically. It can just go away. Shoop, I don't want a killer working in my slaughterhouse. You have it, if you're so keen. Carrot grabbed the door and forced it wide open. Sock took a step backwards. Are you trying to bribe an officer of the law, Mr. Sock? Are you insane? I am always sane, said Carrot. He always is, sighed Angua. "'Watchmen are not allowed to accept gifts,' said Carrot. "'He looked around at Dorful, who was standing forlornly in the street. "'But I will buy him from you for a fair price.' "'Sock looked from Carrot to the golem, and then back again. "'Buy? For money?' "'Yes.' "'The butcher shrugged. "'When people were offering you money, it was no time to debate their sanity. "'Well, that's different,' he conceded. "'It was worth five hundred and thirty when I bought it, "'but of course it's got additional skills now.' Angua growled. It had been a trying evening, and the smell of fresh meat was making her senses twang. You were prepared to give it away a moment ago. Well, give, yes, but business is business. I'll pay you a dollar, said Carrot. A dollar? That's daylight robbery. Angua's hand shot out and grabbed his neck. She could feel the veins, smell his blood, and fear. She tried to think of cabbages. It's night time, she growled. Like the man in the alley, Sock listened to the call of the wild. A dollar, he croaked. Right, a fair price, one dollar. Carrot produced one and waved his notebook. 
A receipt is very important, he said. A proper legal transfer of ownership. Right, right, right. Um, happy to oblige. Sock glanced desperately at Angua. Somehow her smile didn't look right. He scribbled a few hasty lines. Carrot looked over his shoulder. I, Gerhard Sock, give the bearer full and total ownership of the golem Dorfel in exchange for one dollar, and anything it does now is his responsibility and nothing to do with me. Signed, Gerhard Sock. Interesting wording, but it does look legal, doesn't it? said Carrot, taking the paper. Thank you very much, Mr. Sock. A happy solution all round, I feel. Is that it? Can I go now? Certainly. And the door slammed shut. Oh, well done, said Angua. So now you own a golem. You do know that anything it does is your responsibility. If that's the truth, why are people smashing them? What are you going to use it for? Carrot looked thoughtfully at Dorful, who was staring at the ground. Dorful? The golem looked up. Here's your receipt. You don't have to have a master. The golem took the little scrap of paper between two thick fingers. That means... You belong to you, said Carrot encouragingly. You own yourself. Dorful shrugged. What did you expect, said Angua. Did you think it was going to wave a flag? I don't think he understands, said Carrot. It's quite hard to get some ideas into people's heads. He stopped abruptly. Carrot took the paper out of Dorful's unresisting fingers. I suppose it might work, he said. It seems a bit invasive, but what they understand after all is the words. He reached up opened Dorfeld's lid, and dropped the paper inside. The golem blinked. That is to say, its eyes went dark and then brightened again. It raised one hand very slowly and patted the top of its head. Then it held up the other hand and turned it this way and that, as if it had never seen a hand before. It looked down at its feet and around at the fog-shrouded buildings. It looked at Carrot. It looked up at the clouds above the street. It looked at Carrot again. Then, very slowly, without bending in any way, it fell backwards and hit the cobbles with a thud. The light faded in its eyes. There, said Angua, now it's broken. Can we go? There's still a little bit of a glow, said Carrot. It must have all been too much for him. We can't leave him here. Maybe if I took the receipt out. He knelt down by the golem and reached for the trapdoor on its head. Dorfel's hand moved so quickly it didn't even appear to move. It was just there, gripping Carrot's wrist. "'Ah!' said Carrot, gently pulling his arm back. "'He's obviously feeling better.' said Dorful. The voice of the golem shivered in the fog. Golems had a mouth. They were part of the design. But this one was open, revealing a thin line of red light. "'Oh, ye gods!' said Angua, backing away. "'They can't speak!' It was less a syllable than the sound of escaping steam. "'I'll find your bit of slate,' Carrot began, looking around hurriedly. <sighs> Dorful clambered to its feet, gently pushed him out of the way and strode off. "'Are you happy now?' said Angua. "'I'm not following that wretched thing. Maybe it's going to throw itself in the river.' Carrot ran a few steps after the figure and then stopped and came back. "'Why do you hate them so much?' he said. You wouldn't understand. I really think you wouldn't understand, said Angua. It's an undead thing. They sort of throw in your face the fact that you're not human. But you are human. 
three weeks out of four. Can't you understand that? When you have to be careful all the time, it's dreadful to see things like that being accepted. They're not even alive, but they can walk around and they never get people passing remarks about silver or garlic. Up until now, anyway. They're just machines for doing work. That's how they're treated, certainly, said Carrot. You're being reasonable again, snapped Angua. You're deliberately seeing everyone's point of view. Can't you... Try to be unfair, even once. Nobby had been left alone for a moment while the party buzzed around him, so he'd elbowed some waiters away from the buffet and was currently scraping out a bowl with his knife. Ah, Lord de Nobbs, said a voice behind him. He turned. Watcher, he said, licking the knife and wiping it on the tablecloth. Are you busy, my lord? Just making myself this meat paste sandwich, said Nobby. That pâté de foie gras, my lord. Oh, is that what it's called? It doesn't have the kick of clamours beefy might spread, I know that. Want a quail's egg? They're a bit small. No, thank you. There's loads of them, said Nobby, generously. They're free. You don't have to pay. Even so, I can get six in me mouth at once. Watch. Amazing, my lord. I was wondering, however, whether you would care to join a few of us in the smoking room? Indeed. A friendly arm was put around Nobby's shoulders and he was adroitly piloted away from the buffet, but not before he had grabbed a plate of chicken legs. So many people want to talk to you. Sergeant Colon tried to clean himself up, but trying to clean yourself up with water from the Ark was a difficult manoeuvre. The best you could hope for was an all-over grey. Fred Colon hadn't reached Vimes's level of sophisticated despair. Vimes took the view that life was so full of things happening erratically in all directions that the chances of any of them making some kind of relevant sense were remote in the extreme. Colon, being by nature more optimistic and by intellect a good deal slower, was still at the clues-are-important stage. Why had he been tied up with string? There were still loops of it around his arms and legs. "'You're sure you don't know where I was?' he said. "'Yes, walked into the place,' said wee mad Arthur, trotting along beside him. "'How come you didn't know?' "'Cause it was dark and foggy and I wasn't paying attention, that's why. "'I was just going through the motions.' "'He, <laughs> he, good one.' "'Don't mess about. Where was I?' "'Don't ask me,' said wee mad Arthur. "'I just hunts under the whole cattle market area. "'I don't bother about what's up top. "'Like I said, them runs go everywhere.' "'Anyone along there makes string?' It's all animal stuff, I tell yous, sausages and soap and stuff like that. Is this the bit where yous gives me the money? Colon patted his pockets. They squelched. You'll have to come to the watch house, wee mad Arthur. I got a business to run here. I'm swearing you in as a special watchman for the night, said Colon. What's the pay? Dollar a night. Wee mad Arthur's tiny eyes gleamed. They gleamed red. "'Ye gods, you look awful,' said Colon. "'What are you looking at my ear for?' "'We mad Arthur said nothing.' Colon turned. A golem was standing behind him. It was taller than any he'd seen before and much better proportioned, a human statue rather than the gross shape of the usual golems, and handsome, too, in the cold way of a statue, and its eyes shone like red searchlights. It raised a fist above its head and opened its mouth. More red light streamed out. It screamed like a bull. Wee Mad Arthur kicked Colon on the ankle. Are we running or what? he said. 
Colin backed away, still staring at the thing. It's... it's all right, they can't move fast, he muttered. And then his sensible body gave up on his stupid brain and fired up his legs, spinning him around and shoving him in the opposite direction. He risked looking over his shoulder. The golem was running after him in long, easy strides. We mad Arthur caught him up. Colin was used to proceeding gently. He wasn't built for high speeds and said so. And you certainly can't run faster than that thing, he wheezed. Just so long as I can run faster than you, said wee mad Arthur. This way. There was a flight of old wooden stairs against the side of a warehouse. The gnome went up them like the rats he hunted. Colon, panting like a steam engine, followed him. He stopped halfway up and looked around. The golem had reached the bottom step. It tested it carefully. The wood creaked and the whole stairway, grey with age, trembled. It won't take the weight, said wee mad Arthur. The bugger's going to smash it up, yeah. The golem took another step. The wood groaned. Colon got a grip on himself and hurried on up the stairs. Behind him, the golem seemed to have satisfied itself that the wood could indeed take its weight, and started to leap from step to step. The rails shook under Colon's hands, and the whole structure swayed. "'Come on, will you?' said wee mad Arthur, who had already reached the top. "'It's gaining on you!' The golem lunged. The stairs gave way. Colon flung out his hands and grabbed the edge of the roof. Then his body thudded into the side of the building." There was the distant sound of woodwork hitting cobbles. Come on, then, said wee mad Arthur. Pull yourself up, you silly bugger. <sighs> Can't, said Conan. Why not? It's holding on to my foot. <sighs> A cigar, your lordship. Brandy, my lord. Lord Dunobbs sat back in the comfort of his chair. His feet only just reached the ground. Brandy and cigars, eh? This was the life all right. He took a deep puff at the cigar. "'We were just talking, my lord, about the future governance of the city, now that poor Lord Vetinari's health is so bad.' Nobby nodded. This was the kind of thing you talked about when you were a knob. This was what he'd been born for. The brandy was giving him a pleasant warm feeling. "'It would obviously upset the current equilibrium if we looked for a new patrician at this point.' said another armchair. What is your view, Lord de Nobbs? Oh, yeah, right. Uh, the guilds would fight like cats in a sack, said Nobby. Everyone knows that. A masterly summary, if I may say so. There was a general murmur of agreement from the other chairs. Nobby grinned. Ah, oh, yes, this was the bee's pyjamas and no mistake. Hobnobbing with his fellow knobs, talking big talk about important matters, instead of having to think up reasons why the tea money tin was empty. Ah, oh, yes. A chair said, Besides, are any of the guild leaders up to the task? <laughs> they can organise a bunch of tradesmen, but ruling an entire city, <laughs> I think not. Gentlemen, perhaps it is time for a new direction. Perhaps it is time for blood to reveal itself. Odd way of putting it, Nobby thought, but clearly this is how you were supposed to speak. At a time like this, said a chair, the city will surely look at those representatives of its most venerable families. It would be in all our interests if such a one would take up the burden. He'd need his head examined if you want my opinion, said Nobby. He took another swig of the brandy and waved the cigar expansively. Still, not to worry, he said. Everyone knows we've got a king hanging around. No problem there. Send for Captain Carrot. That's my advice.
another evening folded over the city in layers of fog. When Carrot arrived back at the watchhouse, Corporal Littlebottom made a face at him and indicated with the flicker of her eyes the three people sitting grimly on the bench against one wall. They want to see an officer, she hissed, but Sergeant Colon isn't back and I knocked on Mr Vimes's door and I don't think he's in. Carrot composed his features into a welcoming smile. Mrs Palm, he said, and Mr Boggis and Dr Downey, I am so sorry. We're rather stretched at present, what with the poisoning and this business with the golems. The head of the Assassin's Guild smiled, but only with his mouth. It's about the poisoning we wish to speak, he said. Is there somewhere a little less public? Well, there's the canteen, said Carrot. It'll be empty at this time of night if you just step this way. You do well for yourselves here, I must say, said Mrs Palm. A canteen. She stopped as she stepped through the door. People eat in here, she said. Well, grumble about the coffee mostly, said Carrot, and write their reports. Commander Vimes is keen on reports. Captain Carrot, said Dr Downey firmly, we have to talk to you on a grave matter concerning... What have I sat in? Carrot brushed a chair hurriedly. Sorry, sir, we don't seem to have much time to clean up. Leave it for now, leave it for now. The head of the Assassin's Guild leaned forward with his hands pressed together. Captain Carrot, we are here to discuss this... "'Terrible matter of the poisoning of Lord Veterinari. "'You really ought to talk to Commander Vimes. "'I believe that on a number of occasions Commander Vimes "'has made derogatory comments to you about Lord Veterinari,' said Dr Downey. "'You mean like he ought to be hung except they can't find a twisty enough rope?' "'said Carrot. "'Oh, yes, but everyone does that. "'Do you?' "'Well, no,' Carrot admitted. "'And I believe he personally took over the investigation of the poisoning.' "'Well, yes, but didn't you think that was odd?' "'No, sir, not when I thought about it. "'I think he's got a sort of soft spot for the patrician in his way. "'He once said that if anyone was going to kill Vetinari, "'he'd like it to be him.' "'Indeed. "'But he was smiling when he said it. "'Sort of smiling, anyway. "'He uh, visits his lordship most days, I believe?' "'Yes, sir.' and I understand that his efforts to discover the poisoner have not reached any conclusions. Not as such, sir, said Carrot. We've found a lot of ways he's not being poisoned. Downey nodded at the others. We would like to inspect the commander's office, he said. Oh, I don't know if that's... Carrot began. Please think very carefully, said Dr Downey. We three represent most of the guilds in this city. We feel we have a good reason for inspecting the commander's office. You will, of course, accompany us to see that we do nothing illegal. Carrot looked awkward. I suppose if I'm with you, he said. That's right, said Downey. That makes it official. Carrot led the way. I don't even know if he's back, he said, opening the door. As I said, we've been... Oh... Downey peered around him, and at the figure slumped over the desk. "'It would appear that Sir Samuel is in,' he said, "'but quite out of it.' "'I can smell the drink from here,' said Mrs Palm. "'It's terrible what drink will do to a man.' "'A whole bottle of Bear Hugger's finest,' said Mr Boggis. "'All right for some, eh?' "'But he hasn't touched a drop all year.' "'said Carrot, giving the recumbent Vimes a shake. "'He goes to meetings about it and everything.' 
"'Now let us see,' said Downey. "'He pulled open one of the desk drawers. "'Captain Carrot,' he said, "'can you witness that there appears to be a bag of greyish powder in here? "'I will now—' "'Vimes's hand shot out and slammed the drawer on the man's fingers. "'His elbow rammed back into the assassin's stomach, "'and as Downey's chin jerked down, "'Vimes's forearm swung upwards and caught him full on the nose. "'Then Vimes opened his eyes.' "'What's that? What's that?' he said, raising his head. "'Dr. Downey, Mr. Boggish, Carrot, hmm?' "'What? What?' screamed Downey. "'You struck me!' "'Oh, I'm so sorry,' said Vimes, "'concern radiating from every feature "'as he pushed the chair back into Downey's groin and stood up. "'I'm afraid I must have dropped off, "'and, of course, when I woke up and found someone stealing from my—' "'You're raving drunk, man,' said Mr. Boggish. "'Vimes' features froze. "'Indeed!' "'Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers,' he snarled, prodding the man in the chest. "'A peck of bloody pickled peppers is what Peter Piper damn well picked!' "'Do you want me to continue?' he said, poking the man until his back was against the wall. "'It doesn't get much better.' <sighs> "'What about this packet?' shouted Downey, clutching his streaming nose with one hand and waving at the desk with the other. Vimes still wore a wild-eyed, mirthless grin. "'Ah, well, yes,' he said. "'You've got me there. A highly dangerous substance. "'Ah, you admit it?' "'Yes, indeed. I suppose I have no alternative but to dispose of the evidence.' Vimes grabbed the packet, ripped it open, and tipped most of the powder into his mouth. "'Mmm, mmm,' he said, powder spraying everywhere as he masticated. "'Feel that tingle on the tongue.' "'But that's arsenic,' said Boggis. "'Good gods, is it?' said Vimes, swallowing. "'Amazing. I've got this dwarf downstairs, you know. "'Clever little bugger spends all his time with pipes and chemicals and things "'to find out what is arsenic and what isn't, "'and all the time here's you, able to spot it just by looking. "'I've got to hand it to you.' "'He dropped the torn packet into Boggus's hand, "'but the thief jerked back and the packet tumbled to the floor, "'spraying its contents. "'Excuse me,' said Carrot. "'He knelt down and peered at the powder.' It is traditionally the belief of policemen that they can tell what a substance is by sniffing it and then gingerly tasting it. But this practice had ceased in the watch ever since Constable Flint had dipped his finger into a black market consignment of ammonium chloride cut with radium, said, Yes, this is definitely slab, wobble, wobble, sclup, and had to spend three days tied to his bed until the spiders went away. Nevertheless, Carrot said, I'm sure this isn't poisonous. He licked his finger and tried a bit. "'It's sugar,' he said. Downey, his composure severely compromised, waved a finger at Vimes. "'You admitted it was dangerous,' he screamed. "'Right. Take too much of it and see what it does to your teeth,' bellowed Vimes. "'What did you think it was?' "'We had information,' Boggis began. "'Oh, you had information, did you?' said Vimes. "'You hear that, Captain? They had information, so that's all right.' "'We acted in good faith,' said Boggis. "'Let me see,' said Vimes. "'Your information was something along the lines of "'Vimes is dead drunk in the watch-house "'and he's got a bag of arsenic in his desk. "'And I'll just bet you wanted to act in good faith, eh?' "'Mrs. Palm cleared her throat.' "'This has gone far enough. "'You are correct, Sir Samuel,' she said. "'We were all sent a note.' "'She handed a slip of paper to Vimes. "'It had been written in capitals. "'And I can see we have been misinformed,' she added, "'glaring at Boggis and Downey. "'Do allow me to apologise. Come, gentlemen.' "'She swept out of the door. "'Boggis followed her quickly. "'Downey dabbed at his nose. "'What's the guild price on your head, Sir Samuel?' he said. 
Twenty thousand dollars. Really? I think we shall definitely have to upgrade you. Delighted. I shall have to buy a new bear trap. I'll, um, show you out, said Carrot. When he hurried back, he found Vimes leaning out of the window and feeling the wall below it. Not a brick dislodged, Vimes muttered. Not a tile loose, and the front office has been manned all day. Odd, that. He shrugged and walked back to his desk, where he picked up the note. And I shouldn't think we'll be able to find any clues on this, he said. There's too many greasy finger marks all over it. He put down the paper and glared at Carrot. When we find the man responsible, he said, somewhere at the top of the charge sheet is going to be forcing Commander Vimes to tip a whole bottle of single malt onto the carpet. That's a hanging offence. He shuddered. There were some things a man should not have to do. It's disgusting, said Carrot. Fancy them even thinking that you'd poison the patrician. I'm offended that they think I'd be daft enough to keep the poison in my desk drawer, said Vimes, lighting a cigar. Right, said Carrot. Did they think you were some kind of fool who'd keep evidence like that where anyone could find it? Exactly, said Vimes, leaning back. That's why I've got it in my pocket. <laughs>